I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. I'll give you fair warning here before we begin. I seem to be dealing with what many of you all call the Savannah crud. And so uh, if I inevitably uh, start into a coughing fit at some point tonight, uh, if and when I do that, um, just know that, that the resulting noise coming from the speakers may be abrasive, so just brace yourselves, and uh, we might test Mike's skills back there on the soundboard. If he sees me going for my arm, he can mute me real quick, and uh, we, we might get through this thing together. But um, we'll pray for the Lord's mercy and uh, his provision as we, uh, as we consider his good and, and holy word tonight. So I would ask that if you are with me in Ruth chapter 4, that you stand with me this evening, if you are able, as we read the Word of God. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, Then tell me, that I may know, for there is no other but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean's and Malin's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malin, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are my witnesses this day. You may be seated. And let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer this evening. Lord, we are grateful for the provisions that you have made to enable us to come together and worship you this evening, for they are many. You have given us health. You have given us plenty that enables us to neglect our work and our toil for a day to come together, resting in Christ and worshiping you. 
You have given us facilities. You have given us unity of mind and spirit. And most of all, Lord, you have given us Christ. For without his intervening work, we would have no desire, no compulsion to worship you. And we would be condemned, lost with no hope. So, Lord, as we ponder these things, let us not take our arriving here at this spot, at this time, lightly. For you have done a great many things to ensure that it was so. So I pray, Lord, that you would guide me this evening. As I have the task of preaching this extraordinary word. Lord, as we consider how this text reveals you and your goodness to your people and how it points us to the redeeming work of Christ. I pray that you would open hearts and minds of those gathered. I pray that you would overcome the weaknesses of my flesh, my forgetfulness, my stumbling words, that you would sustain my voice and enable us to all worship you together in spirit and in truth. We desperately need your aid to accomplish these tasks. It's in Christ's precious name that we ask these things. Amen. It would likely surprise none of you gathered here tonight. It would not be controversial at all to say that we now live in an age of excessive selfishness and rampant moral decay. If you paid any attention to the news this week, which I might suggest that it would be better for your soul if you did not, but if you have, you will have seen several horrific stories. We've seen that numerous pipe bombs were sent to prominent political figures. A man in Louisville, Kentucky, attempted to attack a black church before going to the nearby Kroger when he found the church locked and killing two people there. There is a foiled plot by two middle school girls in Florida to lure 15 of their classmates into the restroom where they intended to murder their classmates and drink their blood. Now, this is not fabricated. These are events that's happened. Of course, by now you've probably seen the horrific event that took place yesterday in Pittsburgh where a man stood outside of a synagogue and shot in through the windows and killed 11 worshipers gathered there. We maybe are not so far removed from the era of the judges as we would like to think. We live in a time when things like this are becoming far too commonplace. And when we simply wait when we see a news story like this to break for the next shoe to drop. What's the next horrific thing that we're going to have to encounter this week, today, in the next hour? What's coming down the pike? That is why the account of Boaz's actions here in chapter 4 of Ruth is so compelling. Because it's not just rare in the context of the Old Testament to find a righteous and self-sacrificing man who follows all the instructions of God's law for the good of all those around him. It's rare in our day as well. It's rare in our day to see 
self-sacrificing servanthood. It's rare in our day to see people following and cooperating with the will of God. It's rare to see someone thinking beyond the next five minutes of self-gratification and looking forward to the future of delaying their gratification for the good of others and for the ultimate good of themselves. And so as we read this text tonight, even though the, the customs and the legal proceedings of a Jewish society may seem odd and foreign to us, Boaz's actions, I think, resonate with all who long to see a just and righteous society that's ordered around the good and gracious provisions of God's law. We long to see that. We long to see it in the Old Testament. We long to see it in our world today, in our community. Because it's so rare to see even glimmers of it. We see in this text how wonderful things can be when people walk in obedience to God's commands. And so therefore, as we consider this passage tonight, we will see three things, three specific things that Boaz does in these verses, things that we can likewise do to walk in accordance with the will of God, to walk in the good works that the Lord has prepared beforehand for the redeemed. And we can likewise pursue righteousness, goodness, justice, holiness, even in the midst of a broken and perverse society. So what are we to do? What has Boaz done? Well, first, we are to cooperate with the will of God. We see this in the very first two verses of this chapter. Boaz cooperating with the will of God. You see, Boaz, as we've well established in this book, he is a man of integrity. And what do men of integrity do? They do exactly as they have said they would do. He follows through on his commitment that he's made to Ruth. He keeps his word to her because he's a good and trustworthy man. Boaz has rightly ascertained that it was was indeed God's will for him to meet the need of this widow. Well, how did he know that? Well, he knew the law. He knew the, the Old Testament. He knew the special care that God had instructed his people to show the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. He knew the provisions that were in place to take care of the land of the deceased and the widow of the deceased, especially when there was no heir. And so knowing the will of God through the law of God, he set out to accomplish it. He set his feet in line with God's will and started walking right up to the city gate where he could follow through on his promise to Ruth and his commitment to the Lord. No sooner, we're told, had Boaz taken his place in the gate than the very man that he was looking for happened to walk by. Now, the text actually captures the the surprise that's inherent in this situation here. It's the the word that is translated here in uh, the first verse is behold. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. That that word's intended to convey the suddenness and the surprise of this situation, of the Redeemer's appearance into the narrative. Boaz had just gone up and sat down in the gate. And behold, here's the man he's looking for. I've told some of you my uh, lone deer hunting story. Um, The the one and only time that I've I've gone, which may 
dampen some of your estimations of me, but nonetheless, I, I went out into the woods uh, one morning on my, my parents' property, and I got out early as the sun was rising, and I sat for a few minutes there at the edge of the field, knowing that it's likely going to be a, a long day, so I, I just kind of gather myself and get still and quiet and appreciate the, the mist rising from the ground and the sun rising over the trees, and after about 10 minutes or so, as, as it starts to get light enough, I decide, well, I better get to it. I'm a deer hunter now, so I'm going to, to start this hunting process. And so I, I take out my deer call, and I give it one good, one good blow there on the, the deer call. And I wait a few seconds, and I hear something. And I look up, and there's a buck running at me. And I shoot it as a good deer hunter would do. Um, but, uh, and so my, my deer hunting career has consisted of about 10 minutes, one bullet, one kill. That's pretty efficient. So figure I can't improve that. Um, I'll, I'll just leave it at that for now. But nonetheless, similar to what Boaz experiences here. Boaz goes and he sits down at the gate and behold, here's this man. How does this take place? Well, it's clearly the hand of God at work here. It's a surprise, but it's not a coincidence. Indeed, God was bringing about his plan for redemption, even as Boaz himself was working to bring it about, working in cooperation with the will of God. We see this too in the next verse where Boaz is the one to initiate the activity. We're told that he takes ten men of the elders of the city. It's likely that he had to go out and gather these men together to find these men and bring them and say, you sit here at the gate so we can take care of this. These men don't just happen to be passing by like the near Redeemer did. Boaz seeks them out. There's agency on his part to ensure that God's will is carried out. But this is what cooperation with God's will often looks like. We know what the word says, just as Boaz did. Boaz knew the words, God's laws, disposition toward widows, foreigners, orphans. He knew what the law said about land that had fallen out of the family. He knew what the law said about those that had died without an heir. He didn't have to have a special revelation from God telling him, I want you to go and do these things. The law had already said it. This is how God's people is supposed to act. And so we need to know what the word says. And by and large, I think that often we do. We know what we are called to do. We just need to make our feet swift to do it. You see, the problem for us most of the time isn't a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of obedience in doing the will of God. Sometimes in God's sovereignty, an opportunity may present itself readily, as it does with a near kinsman. This person just happens to pop up. Behold, he's there. Recently, a student came up to me on a Wednesday night and, and said to me, I'm scared of dying. Will you please tell me how not to be scared of dying? Well, yes, I can help you with that, absolutely. But opportunities like that are rare. They don't readily happen like that all that often. Sometimes the person you're looking for will walk right up to you like the near Redeemer does here in they may say, could you please tell me about the gospel? Could you please reconcile this grudge that you've had with me for 20 years? Could we please 
take care of this sin in my life or in your life. But that's often not the way that it happens. Often we have to go out looking, as Boaz does here with the elders. We have to set ourselves to work, as Boaz does. We take the attitude that perhaps God doesn't want us to share his glorious gospel with anyone because he hasn't brought us anyone asking about the gospel. Don't be ridiculous. God has set an entire world full of lost and dying people before you. And he has told you in his word what he expects you to do. He's told you that it's our obligation to go and make disciples of all nations. What more invitation do you need? Likewise, we may neglect certain commands because we don't feel that it's an opportune time or we don't feel that we necessarily are obligated to do that thing or we may feel slighted by someone and so we don't want to follow through. So, for example, we'll not sacrificially love our spouses as Bob's been talking about on Sunday nights because we feel like they've perhaps mistreated us or neglected us in some small way. They bought turkey for the third time in a row, even though they know that I prefer ham. How dare they? Maybe they don't really know that you prefer ham. You just expect them to know that. But even so, would that nullify the command to sacrificially love and to serve your spouse? Perhaps we need to make sure that we're being faithful in our obedience first. We need to remove the logs from our own eyes before we examine the specks in others' eyes. Or when it comes to another brother, have we kept grudges? Have we withheld forgiveness or refused to reconcile because they haven't come to us hat in hand telling us how sorry they are for offending us? Well, I wasn't aware that that was God's expectation. In fact, when you read in Scripture, when you look at what our Lord commands, it's exactly the opposite. Our Lord says in Matthew 18 that when someone offends you, you are to go to that person. The offended person is the one that's supposed to take agency to go and make the situation right. The other person may not even be aware that they've offended you. And even if they are, it's still your responsibility. Do you think that perhaps the Lord didn't consider your particular situation, all the nuance that's involved? He puts the onus on us. To go and tell our brother his fault. We are not wiser than our Lord. And so we should trust that what he tells us to do is good and right. In fact, I would say that it is sinful. If we are a Christian to bear and keep grudges. Why? Because he tells us how to deal with grudges. As Christians, if we have a grudge against another brother, we are to go to that person and we are to pursue it until it's completed. Until it's reconciled. If it takes coming back and having others go with us to handle that situation, so be it. Let's get it taken care of so there's no disunity, there's no disharmony in the body. If your grudge is against an unbeliever, then why are you holding a grudge against an unbeliever? Paul says, what business do we have judging the outsiders? God will judge them. They are slaves to their sin. Why are you angry and holding a grudge against someone that is trapped in bondage and needs to hear the gospel. You see, the will of God isn't that hard to ascertain. He's laid it out in black and white. The question is, are we willing to obey it? Are we willing to walk in obedience, cooperating with the will of God 
being swift to take agency for what God has already told us what to do. This is the example, not only that Boaz has set for us, but in fact that our Lord has set for us. (coughs) There it was. Jesus, though he was creator of the universe, Lord of all creation, King of kings, cooperated with God's will. He told his disciples in John chapter 6, verse 35, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Likewise, before his crucifixion, what did he pray? Father, not my will, but yours. Jesus cooperating with the will of God in life and in death. How different might our lives be if we would say, I did not get married to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. To, to serve, to love my spouse humbly and faithfully. I did not have children to satisfy my own desires, to accomplish my purposes, but to do the will of my Father. I am not in my career to accomplish my purposes and my will. Father, not my will, but your will be done in my career or whatever area of life that we want to apply it to. How different might our lives be if we start to cooperate with the will of God in these areas? As we do this, we'll find that it is easier to accomplish the second task that we see in the text tonight, and that is to concern ourselves with others. Now, this is where we see Boaz masterfully applying the law in order to ensure that Naomi, Ruth, and Elimelech are all provided for. Elimelech, you may not recall, he is Naomi's deceased husband. He's been absent from the story since chapter 1, but suddenly here in chapter 4, his name's coming up a lot again. Because Boaz is actually seeking to honor Elimelech as well. His story is brought to the fore because there's more at stake here than just a husband for Ruth. Often we portray Ruth as a simple love story, sweet romance between Ruth and Boaz. We want our children, no, we don't want our children to follow this story. It's probably not a good idea for that. But nonetheless, we, 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 we see this story and we think, how sweet. And that's about as far as we get. But you have to understand, this is a story of redemption. And it's a story not just about the redemption of Ruth, but also the redemption of the land. And you may think, well, that's no big deal. It's just land. It's just dirt. You don't understand the relationship of God's people to their land. You don't understand the relationship of the Lord to his land, how he talks about it in his law. It is his land where his name dwells, and it is a perpetual inheritance for his people forever. And so this is a very big deal, that the land itself must be redeemed. In fact, that's what comes to the fore here as these legal proceedings take place, the question of the land. There's a lot going on here, so so let me try to sum up this passage and what's going on with all these legal proceedings um, as succinctly as I can, though succinct and uh, myself isn't something that always goes together that well. Um, But as we read through this, (coughs) 
We see Boaz claiming that Naomi was seeking to sell some land and that he was asking the near redeemer to buy it. That translation isn't accurate. Um, It's not conveying well what's actually going on here. Naomi wasn't in possession of any land that she was seeking to sell. She would have no rights to this land as a widow. It was likely that Elimelech had sold the land himself before moving to Moab in the days of the famine when they were starving and seeking to raise money. In Israel, you were allowed to sell the right to use the land, but this ultimately was not supposed to be a permanent arrangement. In Israel, if you sold the land that you held, eventually that land at the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, was supposed to come back into the possession of your family. Now, it's very rare that that was actually practiced in Israel, but that was the way that things were supposed to work. And so a person could buy the right to use the land and come up with a formula of assessing its cost, its value, based on the number of years up to the Jubilee when it would revert back to you. So the land was intended to stay within the family forever. Land could not pass out of the family. It was to be a perpetual inheritance for God's people. (coughs) The land itself was sacred. It was given by God to his people in the fulfillment of his promise to them. It was the place in which God himself chose to dwell. It was supposed to be a reinstitution of Eden on earth. A land flowing with milk and honey where his people would prosper and fellowship with God as they kept his law. Numbers 27 verses 8 through 11 explains how the people then were to ensure that this land remained within the family. There were told and you shall speak to the children of Israel saying if a man dies and has no son then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family. And he shall possess it. And it shall be be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So this, it says, this is so important that, that when a person dies, the land is to stay within the family. In short, however we have to, however far we have to go, the land needs to pass to someone in the family, so it never passes out of that family. However, due to the curse, due to the fall, this was a tenuous relationship. Death and poverty often put an inheritance in doubt. And so that's when a redeemer would step in. If the land happened to be sold out of the family, the nearest relative would have the responsibility of redeeming the land back into the family's possession. This is what is at question here. Naomi is seeking someone to exercise the right of redemption to reacquire this land back into the family and to ensure provision for herself and for Ruth. And so faced with the option to acquire this land, the Redeemer says, yeah, okay, I'll redeem it. He's likely assuming that whatever yield he can get from the land will be worth the price of redemption as well as able to sustain the two widows. And so in short, he's making an economic calculation. 
he's weighing the numbers and thinking, yeah, I can come out ahead in this deal. So yeah, sign me up. I will redeem the land. But he's thinking only about himself here. He's not thinking about, he's not concerning himself with others. And so the reader, as we're going through this, we may be taken aback. We may say, wait a second, this isn't how the story's supposed to go. This guy can't redeem the land. Boaz is supposed to marry Ruth and live happily ever after, right? Remember, there's more going on here. There's more going on. And so after the nearer kinsman agrees to redeem the land, Boaz introduces a complicating factor. One other little thing we might hear him say. When you redeem the field, you also acquire Ruth. Did I mention she's a Moabite? And with this woman, with this foreigner, with this widow, you are expected to produce an heir for Elimelech. Well, this changes things. But we may ask, why should Ruth be a part of this equation in the first place? Well, land was not the only thing that needed to be redeemed in order for the family to survive. Often, a man would die with no heir. (coughs) Meaning that it didn't matter if he'd maintained possession of his land. Didn't matter how much money he had, how much wealth he had stored up. If he had no one to pass it to, it still was in danger of passing out of the family. And not only his land, but his line was now jeopardized. And this was a big problem because if you follow the biblical narrative, the lines of the families of Israel are very important. Right? There's a, a seed, a serpent-crushing seed that's coming, the seed of a woman. And then we learn later that it's going to come through Abraham's family, through the son of a promise, Isaac, through his descendants. And so these, these families, they have to remain intact because there's coming an ultimate redeemer. And so these families have to remain, remain intact. And so when someone dies with no heir, that is a problem. This goes back to Genesis chapter 28. When Judah's firstborn son died without an heir, and so Judah instructed his next son, Onan, to take Ur's wife and conceive an heir for Ur. Follow that? Well, Onan, you may recall, went in to perform the duty, but as the scripture says, he emitted on the ground because he knew that the heir would not be his and would jeopardize his own inheritance. Onan here acts selfishly. He knows, well, the older brother's out of the way, so if there's not an heir for him, who gets everything? I do. So why would I want to raise up an heir for him? Why would I want to jeopardize my own inheritance? Same idea we see from the near redeemer here. And what does God do to Onan? He strikes him dead. Now many have read this story and taught that this is perhaps a a warning against self-gratification that would result in an unfruitful omission. But this is instead a demonstration of how seriously God takes the preservation of his people. This was Judah's heir, through whom a line of kings would come. And so this wasn't just mere negligence. No, this was a serpentine attempt to disrupt God's plan of producing a serpent crusher 
through the seed of the woman. And so Onan was judged accordingly for refusing to act in cooperation with the will of God, with concern for others. Elimelech, likewise, was a descendant of Judah. And so the stakes here are just as high for Elimelech and his sons to produce an heir, since he has died without one. In the law, God had made explicit provision for this type of situation. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. (coughs) Deuteronomy chapter 25. In verses 5 through 10, we read, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call, call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of, whom who had, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now again, you may think this is pretty extreme. Well, what if he doesn't want to marry the woman? You see, the reproduction of the house of Israel is more important. It takes precedence because it is through the house of Israel that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the house must be preserved. Notice, though, that in this text, it's the responsibility of the brother to do this. Therefore, Boaz and his near redeemer were not necessarily obligated by the letter of the law to raise up an heir for Elimelech. Though you'll notice Boaz does call Elimelech our brother. That doesn't mean that he actually was a fraternal brother to them. It's likely a rhetorical term that he employs to hearken back to this text and enforce the moral authority of the law on the near redeemer. Boaz is recalling, or Boaz is calling on the Redeemer to obey the Spirit, if not the letter of the law. The Redeemer then has four options. He can accept responsibility as a Redeemer. He can redeem the land, redeem Ruth, produce an heir for Elimelech. This would be honorable. Second, he could redeem the field and pledge to marry Ruth and then refuse to actually follow through on the second part later. Could do that. It would have brought him shame and dishonor in the community. Third, he could reject the offer and cede the responsibility to Boaz. Or fourth, he could have claimed the right to redeem the field, but ceded the right to marry Ruth to Boaz. However, had he done that, you may think he could enjoy all the economic benefits, but not have to deal with Ruth. But had he done that, that could have jeopardized his inheritance down the road, because if Boaz is able, with Ruth, to raise up an heir to Elimelech, then that person's ultimately going to have this land restored to them. 
And so he determines option number three is best. To cede the right to the land and to Ruth to Boaz. Because, he says, taking Ruth as his wife would jeopardize his own inheritance. And he was right. It could have. Because, you see, if he's able to produce an heir to Elimelech through Ruth, but then perhaps not another heir, well, then ultimately Elimelech's heir that he's produced through Ruth is going to take possession of his land as well. And what will become of his line, his inheritance. And so... He hands Boaz his sandal as a receipt for this transaction. This was no doubt a a ceremony that was somewhat modified from Deuteronomy 25 here that didn't involve spitting in the face and all of that. Uh, Ultimately, this person wasn't uh, uh, morally culpable in the same way that a brother would have been. Um, But nonetheless, this was the, the way the ceremony that was performed to show that He has ceded his right to Boaz. (coughs) It must be noted here, though, that Boaz faced the same risks by taking Ruth as his wife. He risked losing his own inheritance. He risked having his name forgotten by raising up an heir for another man. It's ironic, then, that when we read this story and when we read through the Bible, we know who Boaz is. But the man who tried to preserve his inheritance, his name is lost forever. He's nameless. We don't know who he is. Boaz concerns himself with others with no regard for his own reputation or inheritance. And so too should we. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8 tells us that this is what we are called to do. This is the very mind of Christ to esteem others as better than ourselves. To look out for their interests above our own. And this is what Christ himself has done for us. Yet we are plagued by selfishness. Our society is practically built on it. Just look at our advertising. Every product is touted as something that will make your life easier, your life better, your life more exciting. It promises to cure your boredom, your hunger, your sexual frustrations. Our society worships self. And so too did the nearer Redeemer. But the good news for us is that Christ did not. And he offers us a way to escape the endless cycle of self-gratification. The siren song of our society that lulls us to self-destruction. Self-gratification led to a perpetual forgetting of the nearer Redeemer. Self-sacrifice for the sake of others led to an eternal remembrance for Boaz not only that but what the nearer redeemer thought would jeopardize his own inheritance actually confirmed an inheritance for Boaz as we'll see next week in in the conclusion of this book Boaz becomes the father of kings he confirms an inheritance for himself by following through on this act by concerning himself with others It's precisely through self-sacrificial love for others that Boaz confirms his inheritance. And again, the same is true of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10 says, And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. This is the song being sung in heaven at the end of all things. When Christ is glorified, (coughs) you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It had made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Christ is worthy, for he was slain, and he has redeemed. He has secured an inheritance for himself. He is worthy to receive all blessing and honor and glory because he was slain, and because he has redeemed us to God by his blood. But it is not just Christ that receives an inheritance for his self-sacrificial work. Just as it was not only Boaz who is blessed with an heir, with an inheritance, with his name recorded eternally in God's word, but also Ruth was blessed. So too we can now confirm an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, as joint heirs with Christ. Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We are joint heirs with Christ and will be glorified together with him. That's something we can look forward to. That's what I call an inheritance. We can confirm it. We can confirm it by uniting ourselves to Christ. Because who is it that receives this? Well, it's those that are led by the Spirit of God, that are adopted by God through the completed work of Christ and who suffer with Christ. That's how we confirm an inheritance. You see, all that Boaz did for one person, Christ has done for all of us. Cooperating with the will of God, concerning himself with others, and confirming an inheritance. Those of us who have been united with Christ are called to do these things as well. The difference is Boaz did these things in adherence to the law. Christ has already satisfied the law's demands for us. Therefore, we are not compelled by the law to do these things. We are instead free to do these things in submission to our Lord and Savior. We are not compelled to do these things in order to earn favor with God. We could not earn any more favor with God than Christ has already earned for us and freely given to us. Instead, we are free. Free to do these things for the glory of God and for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us then heed the call of Christ, our captain, and set our feet to walk into the fray into the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that Christ has done for us to redeem us, 
to rescue us out of the slavery which bound and blinded us. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful as we strive to accomplish these things. It does not come natural to us. For though the chains of sin have been broken, we often still feel the weight of the shackles. Help us, Lord, to walk in the newness of life that Christ has provided that we've been baptized into. May we honor you through cooperating with your will, doing those things which you have already told us that you expect us to do in your word by concerning ourselves with others, having the same mind that Christ himself had, and confirming for ourselves an inheritance that's found only in Christ an inheritance of eternal value and significance. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us these opportunities, these callings. Help us to be faithful to do them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.